0: The first reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, 1 to 7. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Please stand for the gospel reading. The Lord be with you. Also with you. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Lord, you, Lord Jesus As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, "Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" Jesus answered, "It was not that this man sinned or his parents. So he went and washed and came back seeing. They, the neighbors, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who was a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know That though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you also want to become disciples? Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the Gospel of Christ.
2: So remain standing, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way, far less of me, far more of you, that your people gathered here would be edified and your son, Jesus, glorified, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? When suffering hits, one of our most common responses is to ask a question, an agonizing question, a question we hurl at the heavens demanding an answer. Why? Why me? Why this? Why now? It's a question we ask because suffering makes us feel so out of control. And if we could find an answer to that question, suddenly suffering is meaning, purpose, And if we can find the cause, we just might find a solution. Now, One of the answers to that question, why as old as humanity, is the moralistic response. Why am I? Why are we suffering? Well, it's the gods, or a god is punishing me. So we'll do a moral and religious inventory. What have I done or not done to deserve this? And if we find that reason... A path to reverse our fortunes materializes. The ancient philosophers didn't think all that well of that response, and so they went their own way, finding their own answers to the question why, answers that we still hold on to. The Stoics believed that everything was predetermined. You, You can't change it, so just learn to live with it. Develop a British stiff upper lip. Keep calm. Carry on. The Epicureans believe that everything's random, and still you can't do anything about it, so just make yourself as comfortable as you possibly can. In the midst of the pandemic, Anglican theologian N.T. Wright has observed that here in the West, we are implicitly Epicurean in our response. Stuff happens, life is pain. Let's make the most of it. Scramble for comfort, keep yourself entertained. What's on Netflix? When suffering hits, we often hurl a question at the heavens demanding an answer. Why? Why me? Why this? Why now? It's the question that opens our text from John 9. As the disciples encounter suffering, a man born blind, presumably there at the side of the road, destitute, his clothing hanging as rags off his gaunt body, begging for his daily needs. Adding insult to injury, he overhears a conversation in which he's the subject. Rabbi, who sinned? Him or his parents that he was born blind? What did his parents do to deserve this? What did God foresee that he would do to strike him with blindness before he was even born. Why, Jesus, help us make sense of this. We might hope that such a mindset were relegated to the past, or at least not given voice. But it's not. It's here, and it's here. Our hearts seem to be hardwired for it. We get what we deserve. I think where we go wrong is that we make a general truth into a particular one. Is suffering in our world the result of sin? Well, yes, it is. That's a truth that the Bible will affirm. Our world is not as God intended and sin, human nature curved in on itself, is the reason. But when we move from that general truth to a particular one, we go well beyond the bounds of Scripture Your health prognosis here is due to your sin over there. No, no, no. No justification for saying that. Certainly there are times we do indeed suffer because of our particular personal sin. Let's say you, you can't get a hold of your anger. You can't bridle your tongue. And with your angry, hurtful words, you have marred relationship after relationship And as a result, you've cut yourself off from any meaningful connection. You're isolated. Are you suffering as a result of your sin? Well, yes, indeed you are. But that is the natural consequence of your sin. Rejected is the belief that God adds an unnatural consequence as punishment for sin. Grievously, though, in the church throughout my life, I have heard this moralistic mindset applied to someone's suffering, not only their own, but to others. And it's harming us and it's harming those we apply it to. And we have a picture of this actually in the book of Job. Job is facing grievous suffering in almost every aspect of life. And his friends come around him with this moralistic mindset and they say, well, life is good for us, so we must be good. And Job is suffering, so he must not be so good. And with cold, callous self-righteousness, they give to Job what they think is loving comfort. Job, you're suffering because you're a sinner, so repent and all will go well for you. If life is bad, it's your fault. So fix it. It's an absolutely destructive mindset. And it's no wonder that God calls his friends miserable comforters. Let us be rid of such thinking. And hear how Jesus decisively responds here. Who sinned? This man or his parents? Neither. He wipes that completely off the table, discards it without a second thought. This should never enter your mind when suffering hits, let alone pass your lips. So when suffering hits, when we encounter suffering, how then should we respond? Well, Jesus answers, verse 3, In this moment, the work of God will be displayed. Work that we are called to participate in. How should we respond to suffering when we encounter it? What is the work of God here? And how can we participate in it? So what is the work of God here? Well, chapter 9 illustrates this for us. It's beautifully exposed against the backdrop of a Jewish feast. Chapters 7 through 9 of John are best seen through the lens of the Feast of Shelters. When Jewish families would, for a period of seven days, live in temporary shelters made of tree branches. They were remembering in those seven days their ancestors' journey through the desert rescued by God from slavery in Egypt, preserved in the desert, guided by God to the promised land. And the feast was marked by some core elements, and one of those elements was a water ceremony, and Orvin described it for us a few weeks ago. And the water ceremony, each day of the feast, the high priest would descend from the temple in processional pageantry down to the pool of Siloam with spring water, living water, diverted into the city by an incredible work of engineering during the reign of King Hezekiah. There, the high priest would take two golden pitchers and fill them up with that living water and with the same procession, go back up to the temple, pouring it out over the altar, symbolizing how God had given them water in the desert when Moses struck the rock, but also looking forward, To a messianic promise that when Messiah came, a river would go out under the temple bringing new life, new creation wherever it flowed. That messianic promise was pointed to in that first reading from Isaiah. A river of living water is flowing and the deserts erupt with life and beauty. The broken and downtrodden are lifted up. Holiness and righteousness floods the earth. All that is wrong is put right. Despair is turned to joy. And the lame leap, and the deaf hear, and the blind see. Do you see what John is showing us by including this story about who Jesus is, what he's come to do? Jesus has just left the temple chased out by those who were seeking his life. Along the way, he encounters a man born blind. He puts mud on his eyes, sends him further down to the pool of Siloam to wash his eyes with living water, the same water that the high priest daily would bring back to enact that messianic promise, living water flooding the earth with new creation. Could it be any clearer? Jesus, Messiah, come to flood the earth with the renewing water of his spirit for utter renewal. The healing of the man born blind, illustrative of the whole. That is what Jesus wants us to think of when we encounter suffering in our world in all of its forms. What is the work of God here in this situation? And how can we participate in it? But renewal in this blind man has only just begun. Alongside his physical sights coming about, there is a deepening spiritual sight. This chapter is rich in detail. John is wanting us to see the undeniable progression of belief in this man. For as John says at the end of his gospel, fullness of life is apprehended through belief. It's this man's neighbors who first encounter him. <laughs> Isn't that? No, no, it couldn't be. Maybe it just looks like him. No, it's, it's, it's me. Well, what happened? Well, this guy, Jesus, anointed my eyes and, and sent me down. Well, where is he now? I don't know. The Pharisees question him. They can't agree, so they, they ask for his input. He opens your eyes. Who do you think he is? Well, maybe he's a prophet. No, 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 he couldn't be a prophet. He's a sinner. He's a a Sabbath breaker. Well, no one's ever heard of someone being born blind, seeing again. So if not from God, he says, then where else? My money's there. (laughs) They're outraged and they, they cast him out. And Jesus goes and finds them and asks him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, I want to. Who is he? That's me, meaning I'm the one who perfectly reveals God. And the blind man falls down in worship. Who is Jesus? From some guy, to a prophet, to from God, to the image of God worthy of worship. From spiritual blindness to sight, to a possession of fullness of life in him. This is the work of God. When we encounter the suffering, the slavery of false worship, spiritual confusion, the erosion of hope, self-medicating in all of its forms, this is the work of God that Jesus wants us to consider. What is the work of God here? And how can we participate in it? But further renewal awaits. The river of living water continues to flow To be cast out of the synagogue was to be literally cut off from the economic, social, political life of his community. And in a move of deep compassion, Jesus goes, seeks him out. And in the midst of his isolation, invites him into a new community centered around his identity, his love. This too is the work of God. When we encounter the suffering of social, economic, political isolation made all the more acute in the midst of the pandemic, this is what Jesus invites us to consider. What is the work of God here, and how can we participate in it? The work of God also catches up the Pharisees in the flow of living water. Now, the Pharisees, they seem incredibly worked up about this miracle, right? There's more detail and conversation about this miracle than any other miracle in the entire gospel. Now, why is that? Well, for the religious scholars of the day, they divided miracles into two categories. The first category were those that anyone could perform if they were empowered by God. The second category, only Messiah would be able to do. And there were four of those miracles. The healing of a leper the casting out of a mute demon, the raising of someone from the dead after four days, and, you guessed it, the healing of someone born blind. Now, every time there was a possible candidate for Messiah, or there was a rumor that one of these miracles had been performed, there would be a formal investigation that would take place, and the Pharisees would oversee it. And so, when these this man's neighbors believe that they're a witness to one of these messianic miracles. They bring the man to the Pharisees because they're the group who would investigate such a claim. There's no malice to them bringing him to the Pharisees. They're expectant, hopeful. Maybe this, this Jesus, his Messiah. And that is when John adds a critical detail. It was Sabbath, Now, there was very few laws governing Sabbath. He just couldn't work on the Sabbath. But what is work, the scholars would ask. Well, the scribes made careers out of that question, adding countless laws to define the kinds of work that you couldn't do on a Sabbath, and the Pharisees were the guardians of Sabbath-keeping. Now, if Jesus had simply healed on the Sabbath, which he'd done before, he would have been breaking their customs, But to that here, he adds two more breaches, each more egregious than the next. First, he makes clay out of mud and his spit. To make clay was work. Next, there was a pagan superstitious belief that the spit of notable people had healing properties. And so the scribes said, we, we can't have any of that pagan superstition in our midst. And so they created laws around it. And one of the specific laws was you can't apply spittle to someone's eyes. Here is Jesus enacting a pagan superstitious practice on the most holy day of the week. Now, the incredibly odd way he brings about this miracle suddenly begins to make a whole lot of sense oh he's getting way up under their skin he's flagrantly violating all of their customs and traditions and he's stirring them up in hot anger why to what effect to what purpose well here's a group that valued rule keeping over people keeping Here's a group that held up religious practice over mercy. Here's a group of religious leaders who used their power for their own sake rather than for the sake of the people under their care. And Jesus' behavior has the effect of exposing the darkness of that way of being. You see, these Pharisees, they're the leaders of this local synagogue. This family who had a child born blind would have been known to them They would have seen him grow up. They'd seen his parents' agony. beheld the destitution his blindness had wrought. This is a family that was in their care. And now here he is before them whole. The trajectory of his life changed in a moment. Now what would be the natural reaction to that scene if you had half a heart? Would it not be joy, celebration, thankfulness, wonder, awe? Well, not here. No. They terrorize the man's parents as they cower in fear before their threats of excommunication. They grill the man mercilessly insulting and demeaning him. And when they get an answer they can't stomach, they throw him out of the synagogue, they cut him off from the social, economic, political life of his community, making his situation, in a sense, far worse than it had been before. For now, he is cut off from the political, social, economic life of his community without the blindness that allowed for him to beg. As light Jesus has exposed the darkness of their way of being. It's plain for all to see, hopefully even them. This is where rule-keeping over people-keeping will bring you. This is where religious practice over mercy will end up. This is what you will create if you use your position and power for yourselves rather than for those you're called to serve. He's exposing the darkness. As light, Jesus is plunging them into the darkness of their own blindness. But this too is a work of grace. A work of love. For how will we repent of darkness and turn away if we do not see it? I can think of a few instances in my own life where I've encountered such a work of God and have been deeply thankful for it. As I've shared in the past, I was married before Lori and I met. My discovery of an extramarital affair ended our marriage and divorce. I'd carried up to that point in my life some deep judgments about divorced people. But now, a divorced man, my judgments were directed inward. I was trapped in a cycle of guilt and shame. I was experiencing the darkness of how a judgmental spirit impacts the human heart. A judgment others had undoubtedly experienced from me. Did this realization change my biblical convictions around what God desires for marriage? No. But I held those convictions very differently. For the spirit brought me to behold more and more the person of Jesus who never compromised truth, and yet sinners clambered over one another to be around him. As light, Jesus plunged me into the darkness of my own blindness, exposing the darkness of my judgmental heart to bring me to repentance, to turn away. This, too, is the work of God. It took a pandemic to expose the darkness of systemic inequalities that sit right under the surface of our so-called just society. More, many more, lurk in the shadows. It will take the light of Christ to expose them. In the midst of that darkness, Jesus invites us to consider in the suffering of that darkness, what is the work of God here? And how can we Participate in it. For Jesus, Messiah, has entered our world, a world that is not as God intended. And the powers of darkness arrayed themselves against him, and they did their worst. But he triumphed over them at the cross, putting them to open shame. And rising again, he became the firstborn of a new creation. And he pours his life-giving spirit upon his people that out of their hearts might come rivers of living water, bringing renewal wherever it flows. So that his people in the midst of suffering might not ask, why, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? But rather, what is the work of God here in this situation? And how can we participate in it? May we be caught up in the flow of living water by the power of the Spirit to the glory of Jesus alone. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.